to read. Hey, uh, you, some of y'all, my legs are getting tired. Uh, but hey, uh, my name is Austin, one of the pastors here. So excited uh, to be with you, to walk through. It's been so fun to walk through the book of Hebrews and uh, see what God has done through it, how he's grown people and matured people and what he's doing in our church. So just really exciting. Um, this is uh, one of the hardest passages that you'll ever run into in all of Scripture, and I'll argue that it's, uh, as I've prayed and written it and, and prepared it uh, and preached it, I think it's the most important sermon I've ever preached. Um, I don't say that lightly or flippantly. I've never said that before about any sermon, but I really feel like the weight of this is so immensely important, and so I'm excited to see what Jesus does through it. But um, starting out on a little bit of a high note, uh, uh, raise your hand. If you have ever been peed or pooped on by a child, raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you. We need a support group in our church for that, okay? Well, um, but man, uh, I have a daughter, Grace Lynn. She's uh, 22 months old. She's absolutely precious and uh, so, so sweet, and she's wild like her mom, okay? And one of her favorite new things to do is take all her clothes and her diaper off in her crib, okay? So we lay her, we pray for her, we read her a story, everything's great, she's all sanctified and good. We lay her down in her crib, like, bye, da-da, you know, we walk out, and then my wife and I uh, wash the dishes and clean up the house, and we sit down to relax, turn the baby monitor on, and she's butt naked asleep in her room, okay? We're like, how? It took like 10 minutes to get the clothes on. How did you get them off in 10 minutes, you know? And so it's just crazy. And so it's funny, but it's also kind of scary because you're like, she's probably going to pee, and then we're going to have to give her a bath, and we're going to have to clean her, you know, the, the, the sheets and everything like that. We're like, oh, this is not good. So she doesn't do it all the time. But earlier this week, she did, okay? So I walk in her room. I'm like, praise the Lord. There was no pee in there. And so I grab her. Hi, sweetheart. She, you know, she's butt naked. And I grab her, and I hold her. I give her a kiss, and morning, Dada, you know, whatever, and uh, and I just start feeling something drip on me, okay, and on my feet, and I'm like, no, and I look, and she's peeing, and she's just smiling, as cute as ever. My wife has tears in her eyes, because she's laughing so hard at what happened. She's like, yes, I'm so glad it happened to you, like all that stuff, and I'm laughing too, because it's hilarious. I'm like, yeah, like this is awesome. It was cute. I don't expect anything else from her. She's 22 months old, you know, so at 22 months, it makes for a cute story. You know when it wouldn't make for a cute story? When she's 22 years old, okay? Uh, right? Like, that just, there's something, I mean, can you imagine? Like, she comes home from college to, you know, come back, and I'm sitting on the couch eating some oatmeal in the morning. She comes up, sits on dad's lap, and just pees. Like, something went terribly wrong in the next 20 years of our life, you know? And my parenting and her soul, I, I failed, you know? It just wouldn't be okay. Now, would I still love her? Yes, totally. Is she still my daughter? Yeah, always, you know? Um, but uh, as she grows up, I kind of expect her to mature, right, to kind of grow and not do that stuff anymore. And our verses this morning uh, are going are gonna to press in and call us to grow up on a real practical level, right? Um, and, and as we first come to know Jesus, John 3 says that we're, we're, we're born again. Uh, we're just new babies. And, uh, and 2 Corinthians 5 says that we're new creations. So when we come to Jesus, we are new little babies, and uh, God grows us up in that, and it's beautiful. And so you're, when you're a baby, you're not expected to be potty trained, right, like Graceland. But over time, there's an expectation to no longer need diapers. And, um, and the same is true for our walk with Jesus, right? There are people in the room that just placed their faith in Jesus last week or this month, and that's amazing. And I'm celebrating. Yeah, praise God. I'll, I'll deal with dirty diapers all for the rest of our church, you know what I mean? Like, to have new life. This is something we will do. And new believers coming to Jesus, they're going to be dirty diapers. And I'm okay with that. But there is a call, even if you just gave your life to Jesus, 
to be maturing and look more like Jesus, right? Even though you just gave your life to him. And there are people in the room that have been walking with Jesus for two years or 12 years or 20 years or 52 years. I'm praising God for you, for the faithful saints um, that have been walking for a long time. But we're going to be pressed in every single one of us, no matter where you're at, to ask the question, are you actually maturing or are you staying stagnant? Are you falling backwards, right? That's the question at hand that we're going to be pressed into. And um, and man, it's, it's cute when a new believer can't find where Galatians is in the Bible, okay? It's not cute when someone who's been walking with Jesus for four or five years can't find Galatians. It's okay when a new believer hasn't shared their faith yet, totally, you know? But someone who's been walking with Jesus for five years and hasn't shared their faith yet, that's not okay. And this passage and this sermon isn't meant to shame you or make you feel bad about yourself, but it's to be honest and say, I want to spur you on to Jesus. I want to call you into maturing. I want, I want to do that. And just like I said earlier, would I still love my daughter if she was still peeing the bed or on me when she's 22? Absolutely. But it would be unloving of me to lie and tell her that's okay. You tracking with me? Right? And I want to love you guys, and everything in who I am cringes at this sermon. And so I just want to give them a nice sermon and encourage them. And there's a weight to this that we need to come to. There's a weight, and the best way I could love you is to tell you there's a call to mature. right? And so that's what I want to do. And uh, we'll, our passage ends with arguably the scariest warning in all of Scripture, and we're going to dig into that and see what it's really um, about. But this morning... Uh, I'm praying for three things, and I've prayed more for this sermon than I ever have any other sermon. I've been on my knees more this last week than I ever have in preparation to pray and present the Word of God to you guys, because it's so big, and so I'm praying for three things. One, that Jesus would save those of you who think they're saved, but they're not, right? Would Jesus actually save you, right? To convict you this morning, man, I've been playing church. I've been doing all this stuff. I come, all that, but I actually haven't given my life to Jesus. I pray he would graciously convince you that you're not saved and save you, right? The second thing I'm praying for is that he would strengthen those of you that are floundering in your faith. Now, I've been, I want to be really careful to not convince someone who's saved that they're unsaved, okay? But I also want to be even more careful to not convince someone that's not saved that they are saved. Does that make sense? That's, those, that's a big mistake right there. If you're convinced, I think I'm saved and you're actually not. So I, I, I'm praying for those of you um, that are saved that you wouldn't be afraid that you're not. You'd be assured by God. But if you feel like you're floundering right now and you're struggling and you're just in a hard season, I pray he strengthens you right now. I pray that he gives something new, a passion in you that wants to run to Jesus quicker. So I'm praying for that. And last thing, I'm praying that Jesus would sustain those of you who are faithful and fighting for maturity, those of you that are actually fighting your hearts out to mature in Jesus and know him better, that he would sustain you and only grow you from this point. So that's what we're praying for this morning. I think Jesus is going to do that in our midst. Um, So let's jump in and read verses 11 through 3. 11 through 3. All right, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you, you ought to be teachers... You, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of, of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, in light of all that, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and instruction of washings and laying on of hands. 
resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. My first point for us this morning is it's time to grow up in the gospel and apply what we know. It's time to grow up in the gospel and apply what we know. All right, so as we look at these verses, there are five signs. They give us five signs of immaturity, okay? Five things that we can look at to diagnose, hey, am I walking in immaturity or am I, am I falling backwards into immaturity, okay? And so I'm, we're just going to walk through them one by one, verse by verse. The first sign of immaturity is being unmoved by God's word, okay? Unmoved by God's word. Now, verse 11 says, about this, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, those first two words, about this, it's actually referring back to chapters four and five that we studied through about Jesus being our better high priest. So to recap and get us all on the same page that about this, Jesus left heaven to come and give himself as a sacrifice for you and I, a perfect sacrifice. Okay, so he left glory and all that stuff came down for broken sinners like you and I to be a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He, it says that he's the eternal source of salvation, source of eternal salvation, the only way to God, right? Not good works, not effort, not church attendance, only by trusting in Jesus. He can empathize with our weaknesses and temptations. He knows how we feel. And it says that right now he's interceding for us in heaven, right? Pleading on our behalf which allows us to approach his throne with confidence and freedom, okay? Beautiful. And he says, that just scratches the surface. There is so much more I want to tell you about this Jesus. There's so much more that's beautiful and glorious and amazing, but I can't because you've been, become dull of hearing. You're not going to hear it. Like, you're not going to be able to receive it. And a litmus test for all of us to see whether we're maturing in Christ or falling away, falling backwards, um, is when is to think honestly, when was the last time you were convicted by God? Like as you just kind of assess your life, last couple months, year, whatever, week, when was the last time that you were truly convicted by God? When was the last time that his word pierced you? When was the last time that you were truly excited about God? Like just couldn't, you just, you just love him, right? You're just so excited about him and he's saying you've lost your passion. Somewhere along the way, you lost your zeal for God. It's it's gone, right? So church is dull. Reading your Bible is dull. Singing together is dull. And the problem isn't your, the Bible or your church or uh, singing. The problem is that your heart's become dull. And so City Light, I have to ask you, has your heart become so dull that the word of God feels less like a sharp knife and more like a plastic butter knife? You know, like what, is it piercing you? Is it doing something? Is it moving you? And so uh, if you're walking towards maturity in Jesus, I think two things should be evident. Uh, these are the opposite of dull. It would be uh, a conviction and joy, right? And so conviction, because as we walk closer to Jesus, we realize we, we're, we're finite and he's infinite. We're failing and he's perfect, right? We're, we're, we need grace. And so we see that conviction because we're not okay with where we're at. We want more of Jesus. And joy, because our sins are forgiven, Amen. Like we are free. They were nailed to the cross. There's no penalty for our sins anymore. Past, present, future. Jesus has paid for them joy because we're free. And so the immature believer or immature person is unmoved by God's word, but conviction and joy are present in the life of a maturing believer. Make sense? Second thing of immaturity, the second sign is being uninterested in telling others about God. Being uninterested about telling others about God. So verse 12. For by this time, you ought to be teachers, you need some, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
So this verse is written to people who have known Jesus for a while, right? People that have been in church for years. He's saying, hey, you should be teachers by now. Like, you should be teaching people how to get potty trained, but you're still wearing a diaper. Like, that's like literally what his language of what he is saying. And, um, and I have a younger brother and sister, uh, Bailey and Kate, and I love them a ton. And I remember when they came into the scene, I had to grow up. Like, I had to, to be a better big brother. I had to grow up and be able to teach them some things. And this is what verse 12 is calling us to. Listen, I don't know. I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus. Uh, there are people in this room that need you to be a big brother or big sister to them. Right? There are people in this, whether you see yourself that way or not, there are people in this room that need you to teach and disciple them. And I want to be clear. Every single Christian is called to make disciples. So discipleship, teaching other people about Jesus, isn't just for the paid professionals or the people on stage or the super Christians who've been walking with Jesus for however long. No, no, no. It is the call of every single disciple to make more disciples that make more disciples. So I want to be really clear. When you trusted in Jesus, you simultaneously accepted his grace for you and you accepted the responsibility to tell others his grace for them, Right? Whether you knew that or not, there you go. Can't take it back. You know that's true, okay? Uh, you're like, I didn't know that. Well, you did, and so it's what you signed up for. Uh, and so this is the call, right? Now, if this verse describes you, you're saying, yeah, honestly, that feels like me, Austin. I've uh, known Jesus for a long time and never really told anybody about him. Actually, I don't even know how. I wouldn't even know how to start, you know, to tell someone about him. You've got two options you can go on from today. The first is to be a gospel reservoir. A gospel reservoir. And so this is every week you soak in the sermon. You, you take notes, you learn, you read, you get smarter. You can learn all these good things, but you just keep them to yourself like a reservoir. It never goes beyond your borders, right? And so uh, you can take the truth in, um, but you never actually move it or take it outside of yourself. This is what uh, verse 12 is saying is called immaturity, to be a gospel reservoir and keep the truth to yourself without teaching anybody else. Now, the second option, which I'm pleading you to, to choose, is to be a gospel river, right? A river for the gospel. And so uh, uh, that what you're taught, you want to teach others. That what you know, you want others to know. That what you learn, you want other people to learn. Jesus' call for every person that follows him is to be a gospel river. To first have the truth and the gospel penetrate your heart, to go into you, and then for it to flow out of you into other people. That's his desire, rather than a gospel reservoir that keeps all the truth to yourself. Church, let's mature, grow up, make sure we know the basics, and teach them faithfully. Amen? Third sign of immaturity is being unskilled with the gospel. Unskilled with the gospel. That's the third sign. Uh, end of verse 12 and 13. He says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. Okay, so if you're a parent in the room, uh, I'm sure that you can remember back to the first time your kid learned how to prop their Bible, or not their Bible, their bottle up on their own, right? They're like that glorious moment where their chubby little fingers hold up the bottle just right so they can gulp down the delicious milk. You're like, yes, I can get some errands. You're like, okay, you know, you leave them on the couch. I think they're all right. And they're just sitting there chugging it down. Like, it's amazing, right? Uh, and some of you that don't have kids, you're like, you don't know what I'm talking about, but you will. And you'll be like, I can't wait for that day, okay? So anyways, I call this difference spoon-fed versus self-feeders, okay? Spoon-fed versus self-feeders. And our goal, as we preach the Bible at City Light, is not to preach these lofty, fancy, kind of keynote speeches, um, 
that it fuel you just enough to make it to next week. No, our goal as we preach the Bible is to preach simple, clear, Jesus-exalting sermons directly from the Bible in hopes that you would learn how to read it yourself. Right? We don't want you to be like, to come to and just think, wow, I can't believe Austin found that in the text. Wow, no, I, I want to teach you how to do that yourself. Like, that's the, that's the goal, right? And we're praying that Sunday mornings aren't the only time you open your Bibles. And if you are, then if that's the only time you're being spoon fed, you're not learning how to feed yourself. And so we will preach the Bible every single week, right? But we want you to be able to learn on your own. And verse 12 says, if you live only on milk, if you're only spoon-fed, you are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, the word of righteousness is the beautiful, glorious truth that you are declared righteous because of what Jesus has done for you, right? That's the gospel. That's the word of righteousness over you, right? Um, and spoon-fed believers forget it all the time. And how, and how would they not? You know, because they don't know how to feed themselves or take in the gospel, and so they forget it. But the reality is, um, if you're not skilled in preaching the gospel to yourself and you sin, you're going to be devastated, and you're going to stay in that devastation, right? Uh, there will be times when no one answers the phone for you. There will be times when no one responds in a text, and there's no Bible study going on or no church service happening, right? There will be times that that happens. And for the immature believer uh, that falls into, the person that falls into sin and no one answers, the immature believer sinks into depression, right? Forgetting the gospel and waiting for someone to come to them and feed them. That's what the immature believer does. The mature believer in the same exact scenario opens up their Bible, preaches the gospel to themselves, and stands firm on the truth that even though we fail, Jesus was perfect in our place right? That's what mature believers do. That's what it means to be skilled in the word of righteousness, to preach the gospel to yourself. Now, uh, the fourth sign of immaturity is being unable to determine good from evil, okay? Unable to determine good from evil. Now, verse 14 says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, I'm willing to bet if we're like, every, you guys are all like, okay, I got that one checked off, Austin. I'm mature in that area. You know, I know what good and evil is, okay? We'll do a little test for you just to kind of see. Um, I'm going to say two options. You say back the good option, okay? Bank robber, bank teller. Teller, okay? Dog breeder, dog fighter. Breeder, okay? Starving or sushi. Okay, any sense star starving, you're in trouble, you don't know good from evil, y'all need to get me a blue sushi gift card, okay? Hey, okay, uh, cat, dog. Dog, definitely, thank you, you're a good church. Hey, Huskers or Hawkeyes? Huskers, anyone that said Hawkeyes, the door's right there, bless you on the way out, you know. No, hey, okay, good job, you guys are amazing, you mastered it, good job, except the sushi thing. Hey, um, but, but, here's the problem. Spiritual things are far more difficult, right? They're far more ambiguous in some of those ways. And so a guy I got to lead to Christ in college, oh, he left for the summer, came back, and he had found this new preacher that he really liked. And he was all about him. And so I'm like, that's sweet. And so he's telling me about him. I'm like, well, let's sit down and listen. So we listened to this sermon in red flag after red flag is going off in my mind. I'm thinking that dude has a Bible in his hand, but he's definitely not preaching it. 
He might have said the name God or Jesus, but he's not preaching fully about Jesus. You know, I'm like, and there's all going off in my mind. And, uh, but as I look at my friend, he's nodding, he's excited, he's all for it. And he just thinks, guys, this guy's amazing. And I'm like, the same red flags are going off in my head aren't going on in yours. What's the problem? And uh, the difference was that in his immaturity, he couldn't distinguish what was good from what was evil, right? Like it sounded the same to him. And in Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, there will be false teachers that come, people that aren't preaching the gospel, and they look like sheep because they're clothed like a sheep, but they're actually inside as a ravenous wolf that wants to steal and kill and destroy, right? Like that's what's happening. And so the immature believer is unable to distinguish what's good from what's evil, what's a real sheep and what's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so I had an honest conversation with him. Oh, by the way, let me just say this. This is why we want you to open up your Bibles as we preach the gospel. Like, hold me accountable to the truth, you know? If I say anything wrong from this, it isn't true. No, that's actually not right. And leave, you know what I mean? Find a church that does preach the Bible truthfully. Um, and so this is why it's so important for you to hold us accountable and make sure we're preaching what the Bible says, not what we want to say. Um, and so I had a serious conversation where I said, dude, I love you. Um, I'm so glad and proud of you that you're searching for more truth, that you're, that you're committing your time to this and you're learning and you're excited. And there probably is some good things you could learn, but this man isn't preaching the gospel. And I pointed out some ways, and he was like, whoa, I didn't even see that. You know, but you're right. And he received it with grace, and he was like, will you help me? Distinguish good for me. Will you help me? How do I do that? And you may be in the same spot right now. Like, I really want to know how to determine what's good versus what's evil. And so uh, how do you do that, right? Verse 14 give us, gives us the answer. It says, the way you develop that is by constant practice. Okay, so I've been playing guitar for over 10 years now. Thought it was going to be my career. Jesus had different plans, and I'm happy about it, okay? And so, I'm, so, um, so I've been playing guitar, though. When I first started, I was amazed at people that could pick, like seasoned guitars, they could pick up a guitar, strum it, and be like, oh, yeah, that's out of tune, and they just tune the B string up. It's a little flat. I'm like, how did, you know, they can give me a guitar completely whack out of tune, and I'd play it. I'm like, I think it sounds good, you know? I just, knew, I didn't know the difference. They're like, okay, let me take that guitar away from you. Uh, but, but anyway, so I, so I would do that, um, and then 10 years later, though, I could pick up a guitar and strum it and tell you, yeah, that's not in tune. Here, here's what you, this is flat or a little bit, whatever, you know, I could just, I could do that. How? By constant practice of listening to what's right. You know, like I've just spent hours with my guitar over and over and over and over again, hearing what's right. So when something wrong comes up, I can say, yep, that's not, that's not right. And I can change it. I can tune it back. And relating this to the Bible, the only way you'll be be able to determine what's good from what's evil is by spending time in this. It won't happen during this sermon as much as I wish it could. It won't happen at a conference. It won't happen overnight. It takes hours and weeks and and, and years to know this, to be able to say, this is what's true and right, and I will stand on the truth when I see a lie coming in. I'll, I'll say it. And here's what's at stake, friends. You will have friends that share videos on Facebook of a guy preaching that has a million views, and he looks really fancy. He's got a Bible in his hand, but you need to be attentive to listen and say, man, is this the gospel? Is this the Bible? Is this truth, right? And, and if you don't, then you're going to be led to that, right? Um, friends that will come to you and say, hey, I've got this new idea or this thing, I'm, this article I read. What do you think of it? If you don't know how to distinguish, you're going to fall into that. Or convictions is one of the biggest things. I have friends that are like, man, I just feel so convicted, or I have this feeling or this thought, and I'm wondering, and I'm like, dude, I don't think that's from Jesus, you know? Like, Jesus is never going to tell you you're not enough, 
or that he doesn't love you or that you are a failure, Jesus is going to say, yeah, that was sin, but I love you and I paid for that and I'll move you from that. So be able to distinguish good from evil, even in your convictions and your thoughts. This is what's at stake, friends. So let's pursue maturity by getting familiar with our Bibles so we can spot out what's evil and cling to what's good. Now, the last sign of immaturity is uh, being unwilling to apply what you know. That's the last sign, unwilling to apply. Now, verse one sounds really confusing, doesn't it? It says, let us uh, leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, which sounds so counterintuitive to what we preach. It sounds like he's saying, hey, y'all need to graduate from the gospel, okay? Move on from Jesus. Go on to something deeper and something sweeter. And every week we're like, don't graduate from the gospel. You need it, you know? Like, but it seems like he's saying that. To be clear, he's not. I had a panic moment when I read it, like, am I wrong? You know, uh, He's not saying that. Uh, the word leave means to be carried forward, right? To, to be carried forward. And so uh, to be very clear, uh, it's not moving on from the gospel. It's moving on with the gospel, okay? Those are two different things. And so just to explain the elementary doctrines, repentance from dead works. Uh, repentance isn't just kind of feeling bad about your sin. That's remorse. Repentance is having a change of mind. Uh, and so the dead works are our efforts to win God's approval, okay? So we repent, we change our mind on trying to gain God's approval because Jesus did it for us, okay? Uh, and so we no longer have that as our approval winning thing. The second thing, faith towards God. This is so important. When um, we, we, don't turn, we don't just turn from our sin, but we have to make sure we turn towards God. Okay? And so we believe on Jesus' cross, he died, for, uh, he died for our sins, right? Final, sufficient, perfect. And so we trust in him and we are forgiven and free. That's We have faith in, in that. Uh, third thing, instruction about washings. Now, this has been debated, but the most likely thing is talking about baptism. Okay? Uh, Jesus calls every single believer that has repented to go and be baptized. Right? It's not an idea. It's not an option. It's a real command from Jesus that he calls us to. Baptism doesn't make you cleaner, more loved, or more saved. It's proof and evidence that you are saved. Right? It's an outward sign of an inward reality. And so we're, getting, we're doing baptisms next week. I'm having a class at 1230 after this. If y'all want to come and hang out with me, learn more about baptism, and you'll, I'll, I'll dunk you next week, okay? So that's an option right there if you want to. Fourth thing, laying on of hands. Now, if you walk through the book of Acts, Old Testament, they would lay on hands for different reasons. As you walk through Acts, two main things, they would pray over someone, sending them off in mission, right? Missionaries or elders or church planners, they would send them off. So that's one. We've done that when we've sent people to South Africa and to Slovakia. And, uh, and the other reason is they'd play, pray for people that were sick. So they'd come in, lay hands on, and we got to do that for Angie and Kurt Green that are battling through cancer right now. We get to pray and lay hands on them as a church. It's a beautiful moment. So in that fifth thing, resurrection of the dead. So 1 Corinthians 15 says that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised uh, from the grave and spend eternity glorified with Jesus, right? That's a beautiful promise. And then last thing is eternal judgment. So this is sobering, but there will be a day when every single person that's ever lived will be judged. For believers, we are judged by Jesus and what he has done, right? We, we, we hide under his blood for non and we get heaven for non-believers who haven't hid under the blood of Jesus and haven't trusted in him, they're judged by their works, and they ultimately and sadly would receive hell. Um, because of their works, we don't earn it any more than them. We just have faith in Jesus. This is the foundation of our faith. It, it, you know, and, and he's saying, hey, don't try and rebuild it. Like, this is what it is. Don't, spend, don't waste time trying to rebuild that foundation. Build off of it. Do something with it. So the most helpful way to understand this verse is to think of the elementary doctrines as the alphabet. 
okay? So all of us had to learn the alphabet at some point in time in order to read and write and talk. Um, but you don't just learn the alphabet for the alphabet, right? You use it, you use the alphabet, and you don't keep relearning the alphabet. You use the alphabet to go and do stuff, to go and uh, communicate and talk and do things. And so it's the same thing with Jesus. The gospel isn't just supposed to stay here, friends. It's supposed to move to your heart and in your hands, and you would love people like Jesus loves you. So it's supposed to do something and produce something in you. He's saying, hey, um, it's not moving on from the gospel, but moving on with the gospel. Now, these verses show us this has to be so clearly received that time doesn't create maturity. Okay? You're not getting more mature as you get older. You're just getting older. Okay? Active obedience creates maturity. Okay? It takes intentionality to be mature. It takes real work to be mature. And so I'm just praying as a church family, let's grow up in the gospel and apply what we know to be true. Now, this next section is arguably the most frightening passage that you will ever come across. Even in right interpretation of it, it is scary. Okay? And, 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 and I, I want to give it the weight it requires. So we're going to dive in this. But before we dive in, I just want to just say three, just, just three things to give a distinguishment of it. Um, there's three types of fear. Okay? The first is fun fear. So this is, uh, this is like what the, some of y'all crazy people, why you watch scary movies. Okay? This is the fun fear. Okay? Why you willingly let your ankles get grabbed in a scary house. Okay? I'm not trying to do that. I'm gonna, you know, I mean, like, this is why you bungee jump or why you skydive, there's this thrill, this fun type of fear where you don't know if it's going to go open or not. Like, like okay, well, I'm going to see my, my daughter graduate, okay? So I'm not going to jump out of the plane, right? Like that's, but this is why we love fun fear. We definitely do fun fear. The second one is bad fear. Now, um, uh, this is fear that paralyzes us, that just totally debilitates us from doing anything. It's the phobia type of fear that holds us back. And so if you're afraid of getting a car accident, that's not a bad fear, but it is a bad fear if you're letting it prevent you from ever getting in a car. Makes sense? Like, you've got to go places. Like, you've got to get a job and do things. So it's a bad fear if you let it prohibit you from doing anything, from actually moving forward. And last is good fear. Um, this is the fear that compels me to wear my seatbelt. This is the fear that compels me to look both ways before I cross the street, right? It's, it's fear that motivates me, that moves me. It doesn't debilitate me. It moves me forward, gives me awareness of it, but lets me actually move in light of what is true. Now, when we read these verses, I want to be very clear. God wants to give you a good fear, okay? A good, healthy fear that makes you aware. Not a bad fear that debilitates you, but a good fear that moves you forward in his will and in his righteousness to see what's at stake, to raise our awareness and hold on to Jesus as we have confidence moving forward. So let's read verses four through eight and tremble. All right. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls in it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. My second point for us is uh, let's heed the warning and hold on to Christ. 
Let's heed the warning and hold on to Jesus. Now, the biggest question, it's probably ringing through your brain and should ring through your brain as we read these verses, is are you, is this saying that you can lose your salvation? The answer is no. It's not what it's saying. Okay? What these verses are saying is that you can experience spiritual things and still not be saved. Okay? But it is not saying that you can lose your salvation once you truly had it and fall away. Right? That's not what it's saying. And so here's four reasons why I'm convicted of that through the Bible. Number one, verse six does not say if you fall away. It says when you fall away, right? There's no question of it. It's going to happen. It's not in question of whether or not the person he's talking about will fall away, which leads me to believe that the person he's talking about is not going to make it because they never really belong to God, okay? Second reason, verses seven and eight. Uh, These aren't talking, notice it doesn't say there's one field that bears fruit, gets rained on, bears fruit, has some really sweet stuff going on, and is doing really good, and then just kind of has a bad week, and dries up, and all the fruit dissipates, and then thorns and thistles come up, and then it's worthless. No, no, no. It says there's two fields, okay? There's one, they both get rained on. One one bears fruit, and it's beautiful and blessed by God. The other one never produces fruit. It only produces thorns and thistles. That's the second reason. The third reason is verse number nine, verse nine. This is huge. He transitions, and he says, though we speak in this way, what I've just said, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, there's a, there's a switch. Beloved, we feel sure of better things, right? Things that belong to salvation, He's separating out the story we just heard of someone falling away from God and what happens to those who are genuinely saved. He's separating out the story of a bad field that never produced fruit and assuring them that they are a good field that, fruit, uh, field that will produce fruit. He's saying that those things I just mentioned, they actually don't belong to salvation, right? Your situation is different, yet in your case, we're convinced of better things, things that belong to salvation. Your situation is different than theirs, and you'll experience things that belong to salvation, right? There's a switch, Falling away and not bearing fruit aren't things that belong to salvation. Fourth reason is that the entire book of Hebrews says, once you're saved, you are always saved. Okay? The whole, in fact, the whole Bible says that, all right? And I could go on to so many verses that I've clung to in my heart when I feel unfaithful that Jesus is holding on to me. This is the truth. But just to be clear that the author of Hebrews isn't contradicting himself, look at Hebrews 3.14. Just just a little bit back. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice it says, we have come. Okay, that's past tense, like it already happened. It does not say you will come to share in Christ if you persevere. It says you have come to share in Christ if you persevere. In other words, this is a big distinction. Uh, Persevering until the end isn't payment to be in Christ. It's proof that you are in Christ. Those two things are very different, okay? Uh, and then look at Hebrews 10, 14. So just a couple pages over, Hebrews 10, 14. It says, by a single offering, he has perfected. Like past tense, it's done for all time, those who are being sanctified. Okay, so look at me real quick. God does not change his mind on you. God does not change his mind about you. It's not like he saved you, and then two years later, he sees all the mess that you've created and thinks, you know what? Oh, man, unsaved. I'm done. You know, that's just too messy. I didn't know what I thought. No, once you belong to Christ, you always belong to him. 
right? You are always in him. He, how can you lose that which you didn't earn in the first place? John MacArthur is a pastor in California, and he says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Which is so true. Like, like that's a, I, if you could lose it, you absolutely would. Philippians 1.6 says, um, Paul says, man, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you, the God that started the work in you, that pioneered the work in you, he will be faithful to finish it. God doesn't start things that he can't finish. You know what I mean? Like he is faithful to do that and he's doing that and you, you can be confident. And so to be clear, this is sobering, but we need to understand this. If uh, someone drifts away from God, they are not losing a salvation they once had. They are proving by their lack of perseverance that they never truly belong to Christ. Okay? Uh, this passage is not talking about people losing their salvation. It's talking about people who experienced everything spiritual and yet still weren't saved. Right? They proved they weren't saved by falling away. Now, the person described in verses 4 and 5 that we read through, it sounds like a Christian in every single way, yet in the end isn't. And, and I, I think the author did this intentionally just to show us the extent of what you can experience and still not know Jesus and be in relationship with him. Okay, so I'm going to explain these verse by verse or word by word. Uh, enlightened is the first word we get in description of this person that fell away from God. Enlightened. Now, this means that they understand the Bible. They understood the Bible. So biblical truths are made clear to them. Friends, there are seminarians, people that graduate seminary, that are far smarter than all of us combined and yet don't have a passion for God or know him. People that can quote the Bible better than any of us ever will, but do not know God. They were enlightened to the truth of the Bible. You can do that and still not be saved, right? Second reason. Oh, and notice it says once been enlightened. So what was once beautiful and bright is now dim and dull. The second one is tasted the heavenly gift. Now, remember, as we've been walking through Hebrews, y'all been getting an Old Testament review, right? All through Numbers 13 and 14 and Exodus and stuff. It's all anchored in the Israelites' experience. And so, um, and so from this, the Israelites were freed from slavery. They're experiencing everything God has to offer them, and yet we find out that some of them didn't actually believe in God, didn't actually get salvation. Some of the Israelites, it's heartbreaking. But they, uh, as they're wandering in the wilderness, God gives them manna to eat, bread to eat. Uh, they're, they're seeing his grace every single day, his provision, and yet they could do all of that. They were freed from slavery and still not actually know him, okay? So for us, there are people who will look like Christians in every single regard, experiencing his ultimate grace, taking communion together, getting excited, but not actually believing in him, tasting everything he has to offer, and yet not actually internalizing him. And the third one is sharing in the Holy Spirit. This is the hardest one as you look to this. It's like, that feels like that's a Christian, right? Now, the best example I could give of this is Judas, okay? Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, handpicked. And Judas experienced everything Jesus had to offer. He saw it all. I mean, raising people from the dead, walking on water, healing blind eyes, all the miracles. Judas saw it. And then in uh, Luke 9, Jesus sends out Judas and the ele other 11 disciples says, hey, go out with my power and heal people and cast out demons and proclaim my kingdom. And so he does. He goes and does that. Judas and the other guys. And so Judas, is, the Holy Spirit is working through him. And yet Judas falls away, betrays Jesus, and we find out that he actually was never actually part of the fold. Jesus proclaimed that. He was like, yeah, you're not part of this family. And so um, Judas proves to us, and this verse proves to us, that the Holy Spirit, as a non-believer, someone who hasn't given their life to Jesus, 
the Holy Spirit can convict you, even work through you without actually indwelling you. Okay? It's a sobering reality. Fourth, tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Man, you can sit under the influence of God's Word. You can listen to sermons, fill yourself with those, read the Bible for yourself, meditate on it all the time, memorize verses. Y'all can share it on Facebook all you want and still not be saved and still not give your life to Jesus, right? You can teach it to others, say it's good, and still not be saved. And the last one is tasted um, the powers of the age to come. Now, in Matthew 7, 22, Jesus says, there will be people that come to me. And they're saying, hey, um, uh, Lord, Lord, I-, I cast out demons in your name and healed people and proclaimed your kingdom and prophesied all this stuff. And Jesus says, I, I, ne- I, never, I never knew you. Man, one of the worst things uh, that I've experienced in my last, as I've walked with Jesus for a few years now, is, um, is being on mission trips with people that I love and they're so amazing, and seeing them raise support to go overseas and do these things, and I'm standing right next to them, and they're preach- I'm seeing them preach the gospel to somebody, and I'm seeing God use them, this person, to lead people to Christ, and years later, they're not walking with Jesus. It's heartbreaking. I mean, they saw Jesus do this great work. They saw the, his power at work, even in, in them, and yet they didn't know Jesus. It's so difficult. Verses four and five are sobering us to see that you can experience everything spiritual and still not know God. Everything spiritual and still not know God. Now, the worst thing, uh, as I've been praying for you guys, the worst thing about these verses is that the people that need to hear them most will have the hardest time hearing them. You know what I mean? Like he just said that there's a dullness to God's word, there's a, a, a reluctance to, to put it to action. There's a laziness and a sluggishness. And the people that need to hear this worst in this room right now are going to have the hardest time hearing it. But for those of you in the room that are trembling right now, praise God. Praise God. I trembled over this passage for two weeks, the last two weeks, and I'll tremble over it for the rest of my life. And I want you to remind you, God does not want to give you a bad fear that debilitates you and paralyzes you and sends you to into a frenzy. He wants to give you a good fear, an honest fear that drives you to his feet, that drives you to his grace, that drives you to his sufficiency. That's what he wants to do in you. And verses 11 and 12 says that God desires for you to have a full assurance. He sees what you do. He wants you to have a full assurance of salvation. You don't have to question it or worry every night or wonder, man, I failed. I looked at that. I shouldn't have. Now I'm not saved. No, that's not what he wants to do. He wants to give you a full assurance. And so how do you have a full assurance? One, I mean, just knowing that Jesus' grace is sufficient if you actually place your faith in him. And the other reason is by applying point one, growing up in the gospel and applying what you know, tangibly maturing. Now, there's a movie that I saw about a year ago called Silence, and uh, it's set in the 1600s in Japan. And during that time, Christianity was exploding. I mean, just like wildfire across Japan. And the government didn't like it, so the Japanese government said, hey, we're going to start killing Christians publicly. So they would line up, they'd get all the Christians uh, in a village in Japan and line them up, and um, they would uh, ha- make them uh, fall away or apostatize from Jesus, and, um, and they would go free. And so the, the way they would do that is they had this tablet of Jesus' face, and they laid on the ground. They'd say, you need to fall away. You need to apostatize. And so they would just step on Jesus' face, and that was their clearest sign, and they would go free. And throughout the movie, there's people that, that do that and go free. There's people that don't, and they get killed immediately. 
uh, to see their faith is amazing. This is a real, real story, like really what happened. And um, the reason I share that, this idea of apostasy, um, is that I think that like our, a lot of us categorize falling away as this momentary decision where we neglect Jesus, right? Like that's what apostasy is. That's what, this this momentary decision where I step on his face and I'm telling you, Hebrews 6 doesn't define it that way. It doesn't define falling away that way. No, falling away, according to Hebrews 6, isn't a momentary decision. It's a gradual disobedience, right? Walking that you start turning into. Our passage says there's a gradual dullness to, dullness to God's word, lack of practicing your faith, not utilizing what we know, warning against laziness. In Hebrews 2, it said, man, I'm warning you, don't drift away. Don't, don't drift. And so falling away from Jesus is far less like a speedboat leaving the harbor and far more like a ship without an anchor that's slowly drifting away from safety. That's what it looks like. It's a persistent failure to act in faith. Falling away is not a direct decision. It's a persistent pattern of progressive disobedience. Now, if you've been to City Light for any amount of time, I'm sure that you could see there are a lot of other reasons to come to church besides Jesus or any church for that matter. I mean, it's fun, it's exciting, there's donuts, and you know I mean, like, there's coffee, and, it's, and it's, there's a lot of people here, and you might be engaged, and the, and the music is good. I mean, there's so many reasons. Like, it's very possible for you to love the church and not love Jesus, okay? And so, I mean, there's so many reasons, right? Like, it's a, it's a place to belong. You have a sense of community, new friendships. You're learning things. You feel like you're having an impact. You're helping people. There are so many reasons you can come to church, and all those things are good, but they're not Jesus, they're not the main reason you should be here. And, and, and there are people in the room that are here for just those things. And you don't even know it. Like, that's the hard part about this, is saying you don't, you don't know it, and then once those things start to fade, and it's not as full, and it's not as exciting, you don't really like the sermon, then you want to leave. And it's like, what, what are you here for? Jesus and his word, or a fun excitement? And yeah, like, awesome, I, I'm glad we have fun, but like, that comes secondary to, to Jesus. And so, over time, he's saying that these people will be, that he describes in Hebrews 4 and 5, or in these verses, they'll be used to teach others and lead others and encourage people and do slides and greet people and hand out donuts and all these things. And yet in the end, if they're not actually walking with Jesus, they will fall away. I mean, it's the worst. I've literally been in tears this week thinking people that I love, that I look at every single week, not actually knowing him. I hate this. I do not like these verses because of that implication. There are people that I love, that serve, and I have a lot of fun with that maybe don't know Jesus. And eventually they'll give up. I mean, they'll be done playing this Christian game, and they'll walk away, right? The, the, after knowing and experiencing everything Jesus has to offer, they just walk away. Their reward isn't great enough anymore. It's not as fun as it used to be, and they're, and they're done. It happens all the time. I talked to a pastor in town that uh, I love and look up to, and he's been in ministry for over 40 years. I said, man, am I preaching this right? Is this right? He said, Austin, I see this all the time. Hebrews 6, 4, and 5 have been the, the bane of my existence, you know, just the most painful thing as a pastor. My best Sunday school teachers, my best friends, deacons, walked away from Jesus, left their family, left the church and everything. It's possible. Um, and verse 6 says that we can get to a point where our hearts are so hardened so addicted to the world that the rain has stopped falling on us and even if we wanted to take it in, we couldn't. That's beyond repentance. There's just, we've experienced it all and we've said no to it. Now, in light of everything, here's what this means. And I'm praying you take this seriously. 
if your heart is gradually more lenient towards your sin, more okay with your sin, less convicted about your sin, take this warning and run to Jesus. If you haven't spent time in the Bible by yourself in weeks, intimately with Jesus, or months or years, take this warning and run to Jesus. If you are just going through the motions of church and city group or whatever, and you have no real heart affection for God, no excitement for him, take this warning, and I'm begging you, run to Jesus. Please don't wait, right? Don't wait until you get older to get more serious about Jesus. Don't wait until you're out of college or done with grad school to get more serious about Jesus. Don't wait until your kids are out of school and you have more time to uh, pursue Jesus. Don't wait until you're retired to pursue Jesus. Your heart right now is slowly hardening to Jesus. Like that's what's at stake for all of us in the room. Don't wait. Now, the good news of the gospel as that Jesus will always hold on to those who are his. He will not let go. John 10, 28, one of my favorite verses, Jesus says, just, just kind of triumphantly, no one will snatch you from my hand. The world won't take you from me, the devil won't take you from me, and even you can't take you from me. I will hold on to you. That's our hope. Amen, that Jesus holds on to us. And so I want to be clear, these verses aren't questioning whether or not Jesus will hold on to us. He absolutely will. He will never let go. What these verses are posing, the question, is have you ever really been held by Jesus? Have you ever really held on to him? That's what this is asking. And if you have, you will know it. By maturing in your walk, Maybe you're stumbling, but nonetheless, you're maturing by seeing fruit in your life, Jesus bearing it in you, and by staying faithful to the end. And we will undoubtedly fail and falter, but for those who are in Christ, he will not let us stay there. Amen? And so church, let's take this weight. Let's be serious about what this is calling us to. Let's heed the warning and hold on to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.